brethren, we know that this world needs peace. That's maybe the understatement of the day. And we know that peace is a big part of the true gospel message. It's actually part of God's very nature. He is a God of peace. And the true gospel message includes a theme and a promise of peace. Of course, we understand that the millennium is the thousand-year reign of God's saints under Jesus Christ on the earth. And one of the main efforts and goals will be to establish peace. And peace will be established for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, we know Satan is released for a little while. We won't talk about that much today. True peace is a blessing that the world lacks, but it's a blessing that you and I can have and that you and I can learn. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10 to begin the sermon. Acts chapter 10. And we'll begin in verse 34. Now, this is an interesting and important time in the New Testament church as the New Testament church is beginning. And you're familiar, of course, with the Acts of the Apostles and sort of the, <clears throat> the events that the book of Acts uh, records or, or, or recounts for us. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, this is after God gave Peter that very important vision that God gave Peter of the clean and unclean animals, and we, of course, know what that was about. And so, continuing with that event in Acts chapter 10, verse 35, Peter is preaching, and he begins in verse 34. He says, I perceive, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now, why, why does he say this? Because there was the presumption of partiality uh, that the Jews had that God would not bring others into the truth. And so God had to help Peter understand that the gospel was for all people, for the whole world. It did begin going out to the house of Israel, but it was to be for the whole world. And so Peter makes the statement that in truth, I perceive God shows no partiality. Verse 35 but in every nation, whoever fears him, if you fear God, you will keep his commandments. Uh, Solomon wrote at the end of Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 12, verse what, 13, 12, 13. He writes that the, that, that the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. So we fear God and we keep his commandments. That's why we're here. And so Peter is expanding the, uh, the mentality, expanding the understanding of some of the believers here, and he's helping them understand that God shows no partiality, but wherever the true gospel goes out, whoever fears him and works righteousness, works righteousness. It's not faith alone or grace alone. God expects us to change and apply the instruction that he gives us. Whoever works righteousness is accepted by him. There's no partiality. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That gospel message of peace was not and is not limited to the one tribe of Judah or the 12 tribes of Israel. 
But it is available to all. Verse 37. Verse 37. Uh, that you, th- that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, and so forth, and so forth. The gospel is a gospel of peace for all nations, for all people. And Peter was helping the church to understand that he wants, that God wants peace within the body as well. It's a blessing that we enjoy, brethren. And our lights are going to shine more brightly as the days go by. That there's no Democrat or Republican, black or white, north or south. You know, we're just God's people. Let's turn a few uh, chapters or a few pages uh, forward to Romans. To Romans. I'd like to talk about peace today. The title of the sermon is simply The God of Peace. It's maybe a simple message today, but hopefully very helpful, hopefully very profound, hopefully something we can be inspired by and also toward the end of the sermon, uh, uh, maybe learn to apply some some principles even better in our lives. We'll ask some questions uh, regarding how we're applying some of these principles, this truth in our lives toward the end of the sermon. So the title of the sermon, if you'd like a title, is simply The God of Peace. And so we're in the book of Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Today we'll review a vital aspect of Jesus Christ's purpose, which we saw Peter allude to in Acts, that he is the Prince of Peace. He will bring and establish peace on the earth, as I already mentioned, as you've already heard, as we know, and what the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. But he wants us to learn the way of peace today in a, in a real, true, profound way and to grow in peace in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own families. And we'll see that later in the sermon. Uh, Romans chapter five, verse one. So the first point, I'm going to go through four points regarding this theme, regarding peace. And the first point is simply that God is the author of peace. God is the author of peace. We saw that alluded to by Peter's words. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Romans 5 verse 1, we read, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And how do we receive that? How do we have peace in our lives here? In the hall today or in our hotels or Airbnbs? How do we have peace back home after the feast we, we receive peace, we, we grow in peace, we learn how to uh, develop an attitude and a mind of peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. Verse 2, through whom we all also we have access by faith into his grace. You know, God is gracious to give us minds full of peace and confidence, even in a world that's going increasingly mad, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace. He's gracious in which we stand. We don't fall. The world is going to continue to fall. The newscasters, the commentators, they're, 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 you, you see the increasing um, lack of confidence in their own communication, their own minds, their own assessment of what's going on on the world scene. The world is 
is becoming treacherous. And, and uh, the commentators, the politicians, you can see that they're losing, their confidence had been misplaced, but they're starting to doubt that they have the resources and the tools to move their nations and the world forward. But we will stand. Why? We have access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. And what do we rejoice in? In the hope of the glory of God. Brethren, we don't only have access to the way of peace. But as the years move forward, we will actually not rejoice in what we see on the world scene. But we'll rejoice in the hope that we cling to that's going to be increasingly real to us. Why? Because he is the author of peace. He is the author of peace. He's the author of peace in our lives, individually, as congregations, and our families. We'll see that. There's a very famous uh, scripture that we'll turn to in just a a minute uh, regarding how God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Right? You may be thinking of that in 1 Corinthians. We'll turn there in just a second. But he is literally the author of peace in our lives. And we're going to need that more and more as the years go by. We're in the book of Romans. Let's turn forward a few chapters to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. And I'll begin reading in verse 30, a little earlier than sometimes uh, in sermons we will, uh, we'll, 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 we'll begin in this, in this passage because I want to pick up a couple comments uh, by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 that I think are very relevant for us today in this age and also, of course, uh, for the sermon today. Romans 15 verse 33. We'll begin in verse 33. There is no Romans 15, verse 33. Sorry, 30. Romans 15, verse 30. Notice how Paul pleads. He says, I beg you, brethren. He's going to talk about peace here again. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, of course, is reinforcing where all good things come from. They come from God. I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you, what, strive together with me. Now what Paul's, Paul's going to start talking about here is joy and harmony and peace and unity in the work, in the hope, in the great commission, in the preaching of the gospel, in being together as family, in the work that we're all part of. But even in the face of resistance, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, That through the love of the Spirit, we're bound by God's Spirit. That you strive together with me. It takes some effort. Strive together. You had to get up this morning, brush your teeth, say your prayers, right? Make your coffee. And put God first and then be here. And if you're at home, we understand that some of you uh, are dealing with health problems. We understand that some of you um, just can't be here because of, of health and age. But you're here with us spiritually. You're here with us spiritually. You're connecting on the phone or the internet. And God knows where you are. And so I don't claim to speak with the authority of Paul by any stretch. But just like he begged them, we beseech you. That we are in this together through the love of the Spirit. We're striving together. Whether you're in the room or you're at home and you're connecting You're keeping these days holy and special. And even in the face of resistance, notice verse 31 and 32, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Paul dealt, we know, with persecution. 
right? Not everybody in his community said, you know, Paul, you're, you're great. Uh, we, we, we agree with you, right? Have you ever run into any of that with family or coworkers or bosses or teachers or friends in school, right? We understand that, that the world, for the most part, doesn't really appreciate or understand the way of life you've been called to. And so Paul is reaching out to the brethren. He says, I beg you through who? Verse 30, the Lord Jesus Christ, that through the love of the Spirit, that we strive together. We put in the effort. We get up in the morning. We say our prayers. We put God first. We do our Bible study. We, we ask God to cleanse our minds, to have us, help us have the right focus. Because in verse 31, there's others who, you know, they resist. Verse 32, what is his hope? That I may come to you with the with joy, right? Paul understood he had work to do with joy by the will of God, and that you may be refreshed together, and that I may be refreshed together with you. Right? It's refreshing to be here at the at the feast, isn't it? Where does that refreshment come from? It's not the extra few hundred dollars you have in tithe to spend. That's nice. The refreshment comes from God. And a number of you made those comments to me uh, opening night and yesterday that it just, it, it, in each year it, it typically does, but it felt better, it felt different. It really felt palpably different and better. Why? Because the God of peace is with you, verse 33. The God of peace is with us and with you. God is the author of peace. He wants us to have peace. It's important to him. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 is the famous scripture that I alluded to a moment ago. What is one of the ways we know that this is God's church? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. One of the ways we know is that we have, we have unity. We have love. We have peace. We're not confused regarding doctrine. We're not arguing and debating regarding things. We're not out of alignment with God's instruction or God's laws, we're, 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 we're in loving unity and harmony around the world. For those of you who've been able to travel, you know you can, you can uh, arrive at a feast site in Argentina or Australia or Brazil or Chile or France or wherever, England, and it's the same spirit, the same unity, the, the same, it feels the same. Why is that? Because 1 Corinthians 14.33 is how God works. And we are a reflection of how God works. For God is not the author of confusion. We, we, we do things a certain way. We're not all yellow pencils. We're all very unique. You know, some of you a little more unique than others, right? But God loves us for our uniqueness, but we're all in harmony, in love, in unity of loving God's law, believing in, in, in God's law, believing in God's promises. And so we have Variety, but not confusion, verse 33. And peace in God's church. And as Paul says, as is in all the churches of the saints. God is one. God's mind is one. There's harmony and peace that God promises us in our lives and us in the church. Because he is the author of peace. Very important to him. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 15. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 13. So first main point, we're just going to establish and review and remind ourselves how important 
peace is to, to God and, and for us, because it's part of his nature, he's the author of peace, we should appreciate it. I know we do. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 15. Talking a little bit about human interaction, right? How, how do we interact with each other in our families, in, in the church, and so forth? Well, we understand, of course, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, that, that we would never render evil for evil to anyone. Right? We, we are going to pursue good. We are going to always pursue what is good both for ourselves and, notice verse 15, for all. That, that is how we work. That's how God is wiring our minds. Here at the feast, back home, we don't hold a grudge. We don't render evil for evil. We're very unique in that regard. And so with that attitude comes verse 16. Right? When, when, when you're stressed or depressed or anxious, you're probably not doing enough of verse 15. And so it's hard to have the benefits of verse 16. Mr. Greer mentioned how often do we thank God and rejoice and have a, an appreciative attitude. And so we are pursuing good for ourselves and for all. And so one of the consequences is that we rejoice. And it's a command but a consequence. And we're in a pray, prayerful state, verse 17. We're, 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 we're praying uh, to stay close to God. And we're giving thanks, verse 18. And through doing this, we're not quenching the spirit, verse 19. And we're not despising prophecies. I remember in the old worldwide, we, we stopped hearing sermons about prophecies. And we, we had ministers and people that didn't want to talk about the scary stuff. Well, we don't want to always dwell on that, but it's, it's you know, about a third of the Bible's prophecy. A lot of it's uplifting, but a lot of it is, is warning so we don't, we don't despise God's promises. We also don't despise the correction that God records in prophecy regarding if nations disobey. We test all things. We hold fast what is good. We abstain from evil. And what is some of the result of that attitude? What is some of the, re, what is some of the, 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 the benefit, the, the result of that diligent Christian nature? Right. See, you, you, you don't have the rejoicing in verse 16. We don't have the blessing of peace in our lives, verse 23, if we don't put in the work that's described in verses 13, 14, 15, and so forth. We don't despise prophecies. We test all things. We hold fast. It, it's always discouraging a little bit when people fall away from the truth and their lives just start to get very off and, 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 and full of, you know, just pain and, and stress. And, and usually, you know, they, they, they're getting into verse 22, you know, wrong ideas, evil and so forth. And so they've distanced themselves from the author of peace, verse 23, the God of peace. But see, we, we are not distancing ourselves. We're not quenching the spirit. We're praying without ceasing. We're, we're, we're giving thanks. And so verse 23 is a promise we can claim. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, sanctify you, set you apart, not just set apart in that you're here 
at services, but you're set apart in his mind, right? He knows you. You're set apart from your neighbors and from the community and from the world because you're behaving differently. You're, you're clinging to him, seeking his law. You're trying to live righteously. You're not rendering evil for evil. You're seeking good for yourself and others. And so the God of peace sanctifies you, verse 23. He sanctifies you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. And then Paul asks for uh, prayer and so forth. These are powerful promises to, to claim. Mr. Ames talks about claiming God's promises. And claiming the promise of peace in our congregations, in our lives, and learning that way of peace now so we can be examples to others today, but also, of course, teach it in the millennium, so vital, because God is the author of peace. Let's turn to Second Peter. I want to move quickly through this first point, Second Peter chapter 1. Just one more scripture to reinforce that God is the author of peace in the hearts and the minds and the lives of the saints. If you're anxious, if we deal with fear, if, you know, you've, you've got too much anxiety or whatever, and all of us, we see what's going on in the world, right? But if you have too much anxiety, too much fear, too much stress, point one is to remember that Jesus Christ is the author of peace. God is the author of peace. Peace comes from him. Now, it takes work on our part. We're learning at the feast through the sermons and sermonettes. But claim that promise of peace. Second Peter chapter one, second Peter one and verse um, verse verse one. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. This is the Apostle Peter talking to you and me, and he's, it's, it's, it's quite a compliment, isn't it? He, he's, he's saying to us who have, who've attained this precious faith, it is precious. So few in the world have been exposed and, and called to what you understand. To those who have obtained precious, like, uh, obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then what does Peter want to, you know, Encourage them to have. What does Peter, um, you know, bless them with? What is his prayer? Grace and peace be multiplied to you. But it's in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's not just a hollow, empty thing. You 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 can't just say, "Well, I I have peace, but not know, not truly know God." And so Peter, he wants the saints. He wanted them back then. He wants. Of course, under God's inspiration, God's church down through the ages. He wants grace and peace to be multiplied in us because God is the author of peace. Do we reflect peace in our conversation, our lives, our behavior, our calmness, our steadfastness? I need to move on, but I wanted to establish up front that he is the author of peace. doesn't matter if it's the year 2022, 2023. Where we are in prophecy, God is the author of peace. It's part of his will. It's part of his nature. Point number two. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures, of course, 
the Prince of Peace bringing true peace to the earth. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the Prince of Peace bringing true peace to the earth. Of course it does. He's the author of peace. The millennium will be his rule. Jesus Christ as King of Kings ruling. Let's turn to some of these inspiring millennial passages. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. There's always lots of Isaiah at the uh, the Feast of Tabernacles because it's a uh, prophetic book. It's the, the largest uh, book in the Bible. And um, it's just an amazing book worth uh, worth your own multiple Bible studies. Occasionally I'll do a Bible study, Bible studies on Isaiah because it's a big book. And it contains a lot of promises and, and warnings as well. But here in Isaiah chapter 2, so point number 2, the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the Prince of Peace bringing true peace to the earth. Notice in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, very familiar. It shall come to pass in, in the latter days. Speaking of that promise that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. What we're hopeful for. right? What, what we really pray for and want to become reality. That the mountain of the Lord's house, God's government. Mountain means government very often in scripture. Shall be established on the top of the mountains. God's government will be above all other governments. And shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many shall come and say. Now before we move on. Who's going to flow to it? What what did Peter have to learn? What did Peter tell everybody in Acts chapter 10? He said, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness by him is accepted by him. Isn't that what Peter said in Acts chapter 10? Isn't that, that the message that Jesus Christ brought and had his apostles bring? The gospel of peace is for all people. And you're part of all people. And as part of all people in the millennium, you're going to be teaching all people. And right here we see, side note, all of us understand this, but I always grin, and it, it's just so, you know, because God hasn't opened their mind, but but never accept, never accept this just incredibly wrong, you know, claim by some people that the Old Testament is all hard and bad, and, uh, you know, prejudice and the New Testament's all wonderful and did away with the Old Testament. I can show you probably more. Uh, actually, we can't. We can. You know, uh, principles, statutes, promises in the Old Testament about grace and fairness and be kind. Just because there's more words in the Old than, than in the New. And right here again, we have all nations flowing to God's government. Because God's not a respecter of persons. Because God wants peace. And many, many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. There won't be confusion regarding who is God. He's the God of Israel, but he's the God of the whole world, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion goes forth the law. We'll talk about the law later in the sermon and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge and so forth. There will be great peace in all of the land throughout the land in the millennium because God's law will go forth from Jerusalem and he will judge verse four between the nations and there will be a little bit of rebuking. You know, there'll be a little bit of 
carnality, a little bit of the human, human spirit, you know, human carnality will persist a little bit at the beginning of the millennium. There's going to be a little bit of that. And so there will be some correction and they will learn to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The, the weapons and instruments of war will be repurposed and neither shall uh, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn the art of war. It doesn't say art, but I'm adding that word, the art of war. They're not going to learn the art of war. Right now, mankind's putting so much effort into the art of war. I was reading an article a few days ago. You know, it's, 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 it's going to get, it's going to get frightening. It's going to get frightening. I come from a technology background and things I saw and heard about in 1994, 1995, uh, that I heard tidbits from, from colonels and, and majors, um, regarding the data that we can collect and how quickly we can, we, we could process data regarding military operations back in the 90s, in the little tidbits I heard was, was, was sobering. And so I read an article just a few days ago, and, um, you know, we now have China, here's the, and the United States is doing it too, but learning war, here's the headline, the United States is doing this as well, China now has drones that can drop robot dogs armed with, it's not, and it's not funny, China has drones, these are AI drones, that can drop robot dogs armed with assault rifles anywhere they want. Doesn't that sound sobering? Now, we don't need artificially intel- artificial intelligence drones to drop artificial intelligence robot dogs with machine guns mounted to them. We don't need that for there to be war. Last couple of days, Russia has launched pretty much, you know, targeted strikes across multiple Ukrainian cities, not taking sides on anything, you know, here, but it's, you know, sort of hard to, uh, hard to justify, you know, uh, missile strikes against civilian cities. So last couple of days they've been doing that. So you don't need AI robot dogs with guns, but you look at some of the prophecies in Revelation and some of the descriptions of the military machinery, I think, you know, it's going to be frightening. If just, you know, what, what does AI mean? It means they're, they're just autonomous, right? Nations will not learn war anymore. They'll be rebuked and they'll instead learn the way of peace. Why is that? Because God's the author of peace. And in the millennium, God through us will teach the nations peace. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, another famous millennial scripture. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. This is that very, very inspiring, famous memory passage regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Word who was the Creator. And here, God is giving Isaiah this prophecy, and we'll begin in verse 6. And notice what his government will bring. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder. Mr. Armstrong often said, it's all about government. And when you understand government, and when you understand proper government, it's it's to, to lead in righteousness, but it's to serve, it's to love, it's to make sure that we align with God's mind, God's instruction. Government is vital. Government is vital. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here, the, the word is actually called Father here. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of, the, of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is a millennial promise. We, we, we pray for Christ's return because we want these promises to begin to be rapidly fulfilled. We want to be part of the rapid fulfillment of these promises. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. I love how God concludes this little, little, little promise here. What does he say at the end? He, he doesn't say, because this is a little bit important to me. That's not what God says. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Because he is the author of peace. It's part of his nature. And it hurts him to see how wrecked and wretched the world has become. And he, yearn, he yearns to send his son back to establish peace. He's the author of peace. And we should pray earnestly for his return, Christ's return. That should be our zeal. Because the Feast of Tabernacles pictures when the zeal of the Lord of hosts will establish, enforce, (laughs) teach, help, to bring peace to to the world. I know we appreciate it, but I want us to appreciate even more. I want us to take the time during the sermon today and really, really reinforce uh, in our in our minds and our notes and our, our prayer how important uh, this concept is, how much the world needs it, and how much we need to demonstrate uh, peace in our lives. And we'll also discuss how to do that, uh, how to do that later in the sermon. But we're still at point number two, that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the establishment of peace on the earth. It's for all people. Isaiah talks about that as well. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 19, verse 24. Isaiah 19, verse 24. <clears throat> Jesus Christ will be king of kings. All nations will flow to him. The law will go out from Jerusalem. And there will be peace and harmony on the earth amongst God's children that Jesus Christ hung on the stake for. No longer will this ethnic group, you know, butcher this other ethnic group or this ethnic group attack this ethnic group. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 24. Now, this is an amazing promise. 
because after Assyria takes Israel captive during the Great Tribulation, right? And after Israel is shipped off to the islands, and after the second exodus, when they're regathered from the faraway lands, and after the king of the north goes down and just crushes the king of the south, and after the kings from the east come in, I mean, you know, you, you go through in Revelation, right? It's, it's not a simple, you know, this group against this group on the world scene. It's, it's major powers going after each other. It's, 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 it's much, it's actually a much more complicated war, World War III, than World War II was, frankly. World War II had Axis and allies and we kind of grouped up. It, it's, it, there's going to be just hatred and it's going to be just unleashed. What will, what will the nations learn? Very quickly after that. The author of peace, the God of peace, point one, will establish peace in the millennium, point two. And point three, in that day, verse 23, Isaiah 19, verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. It won't be a highway with tanks on it. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. They'll learn to serve the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. Learning to work together, forgiving each other, not returning evil for evil. Remember we read about don't return evil for evil? Remember when we read about that? Brethren, if we hold a grudge against somebody, if we think evil of someone, how can God use us effectively as his kings and priests in the millennium to teach peace and reconciliation amongst the survivors of the great tribulation when we might not forgive somebody for not saying hello to us yesterday or something, right? You, you, you understand the, the magnitude of the difference here, right? So after World War III, God will use us, his people, to establish peace on the earth. And Israel and Egypt and Assyria will be one. And they will, we will all, we, we will teach them to serve the eternal, to serve uh, God, the Lord of hosts. Verse 24, in that day Israel will be one with, of three with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, when the Lord of hosts shall bless, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, who was the rod of my anger, but, you know, they're actually the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. The United Nations will never be able to affect this. You see it, it and it's, 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 it's sad. I mean, it's, it's, you see the UN leadership. You see NATO leadership. Things are getting out of control, and they, you can see it in their faces, what's happening, what's starting to happen right now. And you can see that they are not confident 
that they can turn around the, the hatred in the direction that things are going in the world scene right now. The author of peace, he will turn it around. And he'll use us to establish peace for all the nations in his kingdom. Isaiah 32, verse 15. A few more scriptures regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the Prince of Peace bringing true peace to the world in the millennium. Isaiah 32, verse 15. Isaiah 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, I'm breaking into a, a, a prophecy uh, <clears throat> regarding the future. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. So alluding to the, 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 the physical restoration that God will bring upon the land after the destruction that's coming. Then what will occur? Isaiah 32, verse 16. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. How do we have justice? I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but we have justice by learning and applying God's laws. Big hint, you know, regarding a, another point that's coming up here in, in the sermon. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be what? Will be peace. And the effect of righteousness will be what? Verse 17. Quietness. And assurance. You know, they don't have quietness and assurance in a lot of the cities in the United States today. We don't have quietness and assurance throughout large swaths of the world. I don't want to start naming regions. And when you're worried about missiles coming in or you're worried about people kicking down your doors and so forth. My people will dwell in there in a peaceful habitation. Peace is important to God. In secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Those are some of the benefits of peace, of God's law, of righteousness, when righteousness prevails. Brethren, we're not here, we understand, we're not here just to have a vacation or just to enjoy, you know, fellowship. We're here to picture but more importantly we're here to really inculcate we're here to really internalize the value the importance the blessings the the profound wonder of how god's way of life god's instruction god's law produces peace produces peace because the world needs it. And so God wants us to learn it so we can teach it. Mr. Tolmack was talking about being a teacher. How do we teach something we don't know? Now, we do know it. You know, we're, we're maybe maybe we're all, at, you know, at an A minus and God wants to get us to an A plus. I don't know where we all are individually, but it's an important topic. He's the author of peace. He's the God of peace. He's going to establish peace. You know, why do we pray, thy kingdom come? Why do we want to be first fruits, God beings? Is it only because our mortal bodies are becoming more 
you know, have, we have more pain and so forth, or we miss, you know, our, 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 our deceased friends and so forth. No, a, a large reason why we pray thy kingdom come is because we have hearts of flesh that hurt and yearn when we see the suffering and the hopelessness out there. And we want to help. We want to be part of helping. Never give up that, that vision. If you walk away from God's laws, you walk away from the holy days, it's the equivalent of seeing a car wreck and people are mangled and you just walk down the road. You don't want to be part of helping. I, I want to be part of helping. You want to be part of helping. God's holy days, God's plan, the gospel message is the solution to the car wreck that is the world. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. How will this be established? Ezekiel 37, verse 24. By Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, and by the resurrected saints who will rule under him. Ezekiel 37 speaks of one of those saints that you'll meet in a number of years in the future. We know we know who 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 this person is. We we read a lot about him. Ezekiel 37 verse 24. In the world tomorrow, in the millennium, when God is establishing peace amongst all the peoples, when we hopefully will be there under Jesus Christ or maybe we're, you know, 20 levels under Jesus Christ. You know, right? We, I'm probably going to be under this person, who's under that person, who's under this person. I may be way, way down there. But that's okay. I want to be there. And I want to be a king and a priest helping to establish God's government. And you and I look forward to seeing, verse 24, David. David. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. And he will be king over Israel. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. And do them. And David will be teaching God's law. And we will be teaching God's laws. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob. Verse 25. My servant where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there. They, their children, their children's children. Forever. They're going to have peace. They're going to have quietness. Assurance. Calmness. Verse 25. And my servant David shall be their, their prince forever. Moreover, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will establish them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And all the nations will learn to worship him. All the nations will know, verse 28, that the Prince of Peace has sanctified Israel. Israel's no longer a byword. Israel's no longer that nation that became very, very treacherous and very, very rebellious and sinful. They had to be corrected. Israel's now, again, God's inheritance and is learning to walk in compliance with God's instructions like the other nations are learning to walk in compliance with God's instructions. And that covenant of peace will be made with Israel and with all the nations. I won't turn to it for time, but... Remember Micah 4, verse 1, 2, 3. You can put that in your notes. 
where the nations will uh, beat their their swords and their plowshares into in their, their swords into plowshares, their weapons into to instruments of peace. Point number three, I think we're appreciating how much the world needs peace, how much uh, God is yearning to establish peace upon the earth in the near future. Point number three, I'd like to talk a little bit about our calling, our calling, and ask us how much we appreciate the uniqueness of our calling. How much do we appreciate the uniqueness of our calling? Let's go to Romans chapter 3. We won't spend as much time on this uh, point. Romans chapter 3, verse 17. But do we really, really appreciate the uniqueness of our calling, what God has revealed to us? Think about it. So much of the Christian world is confused and thinks the God of the Old Testament is the, 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 the mean, heavy, hard, you know, guy who you know, isn't fair or whatever. But you know better. You know the God of the Old Testament is actually Jesus Christ. And you know that his will has been for 6,000 years almost to, to unseat Satan from being the God of this world and to establish his, his government on this world. It, it, the uniqueness of what we understand is profound. And so Romans 3 verse 17 reminds us, Romans three seventeen. That the world does not know the way of peace. Why is that? Because they don't fear God. Verse 18. The world does not know the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a law, brethren. The more we love and keep and apply the Ten Commandments in our lives... The more we understand the other instructions that we read some of, for example, don't return evil for evil and so forth. The more God will bless us in our own lives, in our own homes, in our congregations with peace. The world does not know the way of peace. The world has and is rejecting God's laws and it's increasingly doing that, especially the Israelitish nations. And so we see the, 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 the terrible consequences, right, of civil, increasing civil stress, civil unrest, blessings being taken away from the Israelitish nations. On the world scene, increasing war, because the world does not know the way of peace, verse 17. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you have a proper fear of God? You, you do. That's why you're here. That's why we're all here. But we understand something the world just does not understand. The way of peace. They don't know the way of peace. Why is that? I won't turn to it. But what does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? Ephesians 2 verses 1, 2, 3. It says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And it says that he works in those who are disobedient. Ephesians 2 verses 1, 2, 3. We, we all know that passage. You are not under Satan's sway. We fight Satan, but we're not under his sway. We live in a world that 
Satan influences, but we're not swayed by him. Why? Because we fear God. Romans 3 verse 20, Romans 3 verse 18. Unlike the world, we have a proper fear of God. And so there's, there's a rule. The more you fear God, the more you have peace. The world, sadly, is under Satan's sway and the prince of the power of the air works in the sons of disobedience, right? That's one reason why people want to argue so much against the law. It's, as you understand, it's, it's just, it, 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 it doesn't make sense logically, right? Why, why do people, why do some, so many Christians get so upset that you want to obey God? It doesn't make sense. Why is that one of the things that gets people so upset? Because the way of peace they've not known. Romans 3 verse 17. Because they don't fear God. Romans 3 verse 18. What you understand is unique. It's not just that you understand God's plan. What the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. I'm talking about something more fundamental today in the sermon. I want us to appreciate, to be reminded of the uniqueness of what we understand. That Jesus Christ is the author of peace. That he will establish peace. And that that comes through, I'm sort of hinting at the next point, God's law. We're not quite to point four yet. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1 verse 15. Just a couple scriptures before we move on. Titus 1, verse 15. So, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Titus 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. I want to pause there want to maybe use a quick example to illustrate something here. I'm be, I've become more and more, <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, di, you know, disenamored with watching the news, right? Why? Well, there's a lot of bad things going on in the news. But so much of the news isn't news, it's commentary, Right? And it's just, I just, I'm just done with it. Okay? Because you have supposedly intelligent people with degrees on the left, or intelligent people with degrees on the right, and what's the formula? What's the formula? Whether it's the left or the right, what's the formula? If I'm on the left, this person on the right did this dumb thing. It was dumb. Here's a, a another uh, expert that we're going to have join us. Wasn't it dumb? Yes, it was dumb. Let's talk about being dumb. If it's on the right, it's the same thing. It's, it's the formula, isn't it? And there's no desire to work together. There, there's not even the beginning of, of, of mercy, the beginning of cooperation. Because to those who are devile, defiled, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. Now, it's easy to see that, right? We all laughed, and you know, we're not, we're, none of us are laughing at those people. But, you, but that's how Satan works. 
let's, let's be aware of that. Right? Even in the church, somebody comes up to you, you know, assume the best. Right? Somebody did or didn't do something, assume the best. <laughs> right? Everybody's working out their own salvation. Assume the best. Don't assume the worst. That doesn't mean that you're just a gullible dummy. There's scriptures about that as well, right? All kinds of scriptures. You know, you see people out there, you know, misbehaving, being bad. There's scriptures that warn you, don't go be part of that. But to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their minds and conscience are defiled. Here it talks about um, sort of the world in general. They profess to know God. and all, Not all of the news commentators profess to know God, but... But uh, so much of the, you know, the religious world professes to know God. But in their works, they deny him. And they are abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. We're not disqualified. We're learning the way of peace. We understand that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. We understand that God's the author of peace. We understand that the millennium is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles when God will establish peace. We appreciate that. Second Peter two verse ten before we move on to the fourth point. Second Peter two verse ten. Second Peter two ten. We appreciate something else as well. Second Peter two verse ten. We we appreciate and understand that God knows how to govern. God knows how to rule. Second Peter two verse ten. Uh, one of the demonstrations of a proper fear of God is to understand that God knows how to rule. It's sort of what I reminded what Mr. Greer mentioned, and I'd heard that story from others, including Dr. Meredith, but they, 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 they chose to just say, you know, God knows how to rule. We, we, we don't compromise God's law. We don't compromise God's government. That's a thing that the church now today needs to not Hopefully, we do need to understand government matters. Proper government in the church is extremely important. God does not condone rebellion. You wake up one morning and you think you're an apostle, you're not. You wake up one morning and say, time to start an organization. I've got, we've got our list together. Not the right way to do it either. Second Peter two verse ten. We understand and appreciate that God knows how to deliver the godly and punish the wicked, especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, and so forth. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord and so forth and so forth. I don't have time to read the rest of the passage, but God will bring judgment upon those who need to be judged. Our job is to fear him, obey him, not compromise, be good examples and demonstrate peace in our lives, in our families And not get involved in the politics and the murmuring and the complaining that we see in the world, on the news, 
Point number four. God's laws. God's laws are the foundation for true peace. God's laws are the foundation for true peace. As we go through point number four, consider areas in your life. Consider areas in your life. Let me give you a few areas in your life to consider. There are many areas. I just want to give a few. But as we go through point number four regarding God's, God's laws being the foundation for true peace, consider your family. Your family. Husbands and wives and children and extended family. Is there peace in the family? God wants husbands and wives to dwell together in understanding for the husband to respect and honor the wife as the weaker vessel for the the wife to respect and love. The husband loves the wife and respect, honors and loves the husband. Think about our local congregations. Right. One of Mrs. Armstrong's favorite scriptures I remember being mentioned a lot was how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Right. That's Psalm 133 verse one. How good and how pleasant it, it's, it's like the, you know, oil on Aaron's coming down Aaron's beard. It's just it's rich. Right. Local congregations. Think about peace in our own minds, in our own minds. We need peace in our minds, confidence, calmness, peace in our minds, not fear, not fretting, peace. Think about, fourth, our peaceful relationship with, with God, with God. So think, think, let's think of those areas as I go through uh, the final point here. Peace in our families, peace in our congregations, peace in our minds. And peace with God, between us and God. You know, are, are you are you anxious ever when you pray? Do you, do you have a hard time praying? It, I'm going to give you the solution. Got problems with your wife, husband, you know, relatives? I'm going to give you the solution. Got problems in your congregation? I'm going to give you the solution. Got anxiety or stress in your mind? Here comes the solution. God's law. God's law. Let's turn to Leviticus 26, verse 3. God promised anciently throughout Deuteronomy and elsewhere. But here we see in Leviticus 26, verse 3, that if, if God's people would obey his laws, he would bless them and give them peace. God's law is the foundation for peace. God's law is the expression of his mind and he's the author of peace. So if you love him, you'll love his law and you'll receive peace in your minds and your in your family, in your congregation, in your prayer life with God, in the nations and throughout the world. Leviticus 26, verse three. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in due season and so forth. And you'll you'll have fruit and this and that. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. You're going to have abundance if you obey. And then verse 6, you'll also have peace. God's law brings peace. God's law brings peace. We turn to these scriptures often when we're talking about prophecy and, you know, how you know, weather is going bad and this and that, and, and that's very uh, uh, appropriate use of these, these, these passages. 
God's law also produces peace. Peace in the society, amongst families. Let's turn to Psalm 119, verse 162. Psalm 119, verse 162. Now, this is a uh, memory passage. Psalm 119, verse 162. Through about 165 really is a memory passage. For, for moms and dads, we don't usually like to assign homework, but for moms and dads, uh, have your have your little kids memorize Psalm 119, 162 through 165. Psalm 119, 162 through 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing causes them to stumble. They don't stumble in their relationship with their husband, with their wife, with their local uh, brothers and sisters in the church. They don't stumble in their relationship with God. They don't fall away from the truth. Nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I... So, sorry, let me back up. Psalm, 16, Psalm 119, 162. Let me back up. I rejoice at your word. I got to hold ahead of myself. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful prayer. Remember how Mr. Greer was asking, you know, how, how much do we praise God? How much time do we spend thanking God? I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. We found the greatest treasure because God called us, but we found it. I hate and abhor lying. Right? When people attack the truth or lie, just flat out lie or they attack God or attack the truth. You know, I, don't, I don't want to be part of that. But I love your law, the foundation of Godly government, the foundation of peace in our lives, the foundation of peace in the world tomorrow. Seven times a day I praise you. I'm thankful for what you're doing in my life. I'm thankful for the calling. I'm thankful for the feast. I'm thankful for Mr. Weston leading uh, the church humanly. And I, I'm praying for him. And I'm thankful for, you know, the local deacons. And I'm thankful for the local uh, widows. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to serve. And I understand and I claim that promise that great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. You're offended? Don't love God's law enough. Not taking correction? Don't love God's law enough. Can't forgive your husband or your wife or your brother or your sister? It's causing you, you know, angst? There's the answer. How much do you love God's law? Because God says you don't return evil for evil. God says, remember in Acts, remember in Isaiah, you, you, know, you want to bless others. You want to seek good for yourself and others. God says that nothing causes those who love his law to stumble. Because God's law is our guide. Turn to Proverbs 6, verse 23. Proverbs 6, verse 23. God's law is a lamp to our feet. 
That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we study the book of Deuteronomy. We, we should all study Deuteronomy regularly. Uh, that, that, that book contains the, the bulk of, of, of the law, which we'll be teaching in, in the world tomorrow, and, and we're, we're living by now. Proverbs 6, verse 23. And we understand the, 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 the promise here that God's law is what? It's a lamp to our feet, for the commandment is a lamp. The law is light. It shows us how to go through life. It shows us how to deal with, with the world and deal with things. You know, we, we, whenever we compromise or are tempted to compromise or cut corners on any of God's instructions, we're, we're getting off the path a little bit and we're, we're getting into the dark and we're kind of getting into the, the briars and we know the briars are scratching us and we're kind of off the path. And it's like you're walking down the path at night, you know, in the thorny forest and, and you, you turned off your flashlight and you're, you're getting scratched up. We in God's church understand the value of God's law, that, that God's law is the foundation for peace in our lives and it is what we'll be teaching in the world tomorrow. It's a lamp before our feet. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 12. Romans 7, verse 12. We understand that God's law is good. It is holy. It is for our advantage. Romans 7, verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Brethren, Jesus Christ is the author of peace. Jesus Christ gave us understanding that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the millennium when peace will be established on the earth. We appreciate the uniqueness of our calling, what we understand. And we appreciate and understand that all of this hope... These promises of peace are founded on what? God's laws. God's laws. And God's laws are holy. Verse 12. Just. Good. That's why we study them. That's why we learn to apply them in our lives. Brethren, in conclusion... Turn to just a couple scriptures. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Romans 16, verse 20. Actually, we'll begin in verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Let's be exhorted at the, for the remainder of the feast. Let's be exhorted as we go back home after the feast. Let's be exhorted until the day of Christ's return to Claim the promise of peace, to appreciate that Christ wants to bring peace to the world, but to remember that true peace is founded on godly government, and that is founded upon God's righteous, holy law. And so Romans chapter 17, sorry, 16 and verse 17. 
Just as I began, where, pay, where Paul was begging, right? He was begging, pleading. Again, he's urging. Here he is again, urging. He says, brethren, you know, let's avoid division and people that are walking contrary and so forth to the doctrine which you've learned. You know, we're sanctified. We're set apart. We're to walk righteously and holy before God. Because out in the world, those who have left God's laws, those who have left the truth, we can love them. I'm not talking about people who have fallen away that are friends, friends of ours or family. I'm talking about people that are opposed, people that are arguing, people that are, that are, that are, that are bent on evil, that are bent on wickedness. Let's not get involved in that over the years to come, over the days to come. We know there's many warnings about how it's going to be perilous times at the end of the age. There's going to be, you know, lawlessness at the end of the age. But instead, brethren, we want to reflect what verse 19 is talking about. What's that word there? Obedience. Obedience to what? To Jesus Christ, the author of peace. To his laws, which are the platform or the foundation of peace. And so let's let our obedience be known to all. And if it is, then God is glad to see it. And when Paul's resurrected, he'll be glad to see it. When King David is resurrected, he'll be glad to see it. Verse 19. Paul and David are dead now. But the prophets of old, they understood that there were many to come after them. So let's be known for our obedience. Let's let it be known in our communities, in our, in our families, in our, in our neighborhoods. I'm not saying we go out and we put out flyers on people's doors. But when we get up Saturday morning and go to church, they see it. When we depart and come to the Feast of Tabernacles, they see it. But when we turn the other cheek, they see it. And when we love our you know, families and our brothers and sisters, and when we get along, they see it. And therefore, Paul will be glad on our behalf when he sees us in the resurrection, just like David will be glad for us. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Spend time and energy and focus on God's law, on the Bible. That's where we're going to be wise. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on other things. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That is the promise of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now he's going to be crushed shortly before then. But we will rule in his place in the world tomorrow. And Satan the devil who works in the sons of disobedience. Who is responsible in such a terrible way for what's going on around the world. Who tells people to work unrighteousness. Right? Who wants to mock you for what you're doing. Paul understood. Endure. Give it time. God knows how to govern. God knows how to exact judgment. God knows how to preserve the righteous. You are more than conquerors, as Scripture says. Remain steadfast, and the God of peace will crush the nations of this world, 
the governments of this world, Satan the devil, under the feet of the saints. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.